everybody gets into the habit of comparing their insides to other people's outsides. And the moment you do that, you lose. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. First Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Welcome to the show. Before we start today's interview, we'd like to ask our listeners if they'd be interested in participating in a new segment of this podcast. We had the idea of recording some shorter interpretations of the One You Feed parable instead of full interviews, and we thought a great place to start would be with some of our regular listeners. If you're interested, please contact us through oneufeed.net. And as always, a great way to support the show is to go to the iTunes store and leave a review. So our guest today is Jonathan Fields, an award-winning author, serial entrepreneur, and host of The Good Life Project, which explores a life well-lived with acclaimed entrepreneurs, artists, and authors. His latest book is called Uncertainty, Turning Fear and Doubt into Fuel for Brilliance. Here's the interview. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the show. Uh, it's great to be with you. It's a real pleasure to have you on. There's been a few uh, podcasts out there, and, and you've also got a, a video show that were sort of a model for what we were trying to do, and yours is definitely one of them. So I love what you do with that. Ah, thank you. I appreciate that. So our podcast is based on the parable of two wolves where there's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson, and he says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love and patience while stuck in traffic, and the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. For me, it's about uh, choice. You know, the parable to me is that uh, we wake up in the morning, we open our eyes, and between that time and the moment we close our eyes in the evening, we we have a series of choices to make. And um, and one of those choices includes our state, our state of being, our state of mind, our state of body. And, uh, I think we default to believing that those are set by default. They just happen. To me, the parable is about owning the state that you bring to everything that you do as a choice rather than just saying, this is happening to me. Exactly. I think that's 
that's very much uh, on point with with a lot of what we talk about. And I think that choice is. I made the joke in the opening about being stuck in traffic, and it mm-hmm. it's one of those where I recognize this is what's happening, and and do I get upset or not get upset? And uh, you know, I do better sometimes than others. But I agree with you that I recognize at least that that is a choice that I can make versus a you know I'm a victim of this thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about, you know, you look at the world and there are circumstances within your control and circumstances outside of your control. And if you can control them, then control them if it makes sense to. But if you can't, then own the fact that you can't and then own the fact that you can control how you respond to them. I think it's one of the most profound things that we say, which is, you know, act on what you can control. What are, how do you go about making that determination? Because there tends to be a gray area sometimes. Do you have any uh, method that works for you? Yeah, there is. I, to me, there's actually an intermediate step. Um, and that is actually cultivating the awareness needed to understand what's actually happening. So, you know, one of the biggest things you have to figure out is, you know, it, is, is this something I need to just deal with or is it something where I actually can change the, the real circumstance, the fact? And, um, and, most people are so disconnected with a sense of, of present awareness or mindfulness that you can't even really assess that. So to me, the intermediate step actually is to, to develop some sort of practice in your life that allows you a sense, that, that allows you the capability to, to stop what you're doing, um, zoom the lens out, and kind of look down on the situation and say, what's really happening here? Um, I'm reminded of when I was a young lawyer, um, which was a really past life ago. I was, I was in a government room taking a deposition, and an opposing counsel was a very famous, um, very famous author and lawyer. And uh, and I was green. I was like a couple of months out of law school, and I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and at one point, I started I started deposing his client, and a couple of minutes in, he, he starts getting really cantankerous and says that. It's completely irrelevant. There's no reason to ask that. And and my normal reaction would have been to uh, to just kind of melt down, be like, "Oh my God, I'm an idiot. I'm new. I don't know what I'm doing." He he realizes this and he's going to destroy me. For some reason, I'm not sure why, but I kind of just looked and I zoomed the lens out and I and I could, um, there was almost a thought bubble over my head that said, "Okay, what's really happening here?" And what I realized pretty quickly when I actually kind of you know like took the meta view was that he was testing me, that he wasn't actually angry. He was, this was a test. We were a couple minutes in. He was going to see if I was green and he, could, and he could basically run what was about to happen. So I looked at him and I said, off the record, I said, I get to choose what's relevant and what's not. If you have a problem with that, here's a phone. Let's call the judge. End of story. You know, so it's the ability to, to kind of to get the meta view and really look down on the facts and say, okay, what's really happening here? And that's the intermediate step that gives you the opportunity to then to, you know, make a choice. Stephen Covey said, it, you know, there's a space between stimulus and response. And I agree, mindfulness and meditation, those different things, at least for me, have made that space just a little bit longer. It's not huge, yeah. but long enough that, that I can start to do some of those things you described, which is to back up and, and take a look. Again, sometimes I'm better... We're all better at it than others, but I definitely find that that's been really helpful to me over time. Yeah, no, it's been a huge asset for me as well. You've got a list of uh, 
of maxims, or it's a creed, excuse me. You've got a creed for the, the Good Life Project, and I thought maybe we'd just talk through a couple of those. So yeah, sure. one of them that we were, I think, points very closely to what we've just been talking about would be the one that says a good life isn't a place at which you arrive. It's a lens with which you see through. Yeah, and it's really, that actually, to me, that one line is really, it's the heart and soul of the entire, you know, there are 30-something lines, but that's really what it's all about. And, and it's interesting, I've had so many conversations, and, and actually, let's just make this personal, right? So I've, I've launched, uh, grown, um, you know, successfully built certain ventures and then completely cratered. I've done, I've, I've been through the process of, of creativity and creation many, many times over. And, um, and been, you know, you get to this place where like, I just want to be there. Like what, you know, I, I just want to have made it already. Like, (laughs) when am I going to be there? And, and what you find is that even when you succeed with that something, you know, you get to that place where you thought I'd be like, okay, now I've made it. And then what, what clicks into your mind is just a little bit more, like how much is enough, just a little bit more and just a little bit more and just a little bit more. And what you really start to discover is this idea that, you know, there, there is no place, there is no there, there, you know, there's the choice to just own what's going on in front of you. And, and it's really much more, you know, it's like putting on glasses rather than arriving at a place. It's like, I choose to view the way I experience each day and I relate to the people that I care deeply about and the people I, I choose to serve and what I'm making in the world with a certain lens and I approach it with a certain sensibility of gratitude and all these different things so that I don't have to wait until I achieve some designated bench point you know, or benchmark to start living my good life. I can open my eyes and start this moment. And it's a, a little bit of a sort of mystical, metaphysical, and kind of woo-woo concept for a lot of people, but it's actually not at all. You know, there's there's a, just a, a great volume of research that's coming out of the world of positive psychology, which is kind of deconstructing a lot of this and and making people realize, well, yeah, that this is actually pretty legit. That always a little bit more thing, I I I totally relate with, and it's what I finally recognized is exactly it's the it's the mindset that's a problem because the mindset will there's no satisfaction it never it never ceases I mean it's you know in some ways it could be considered sort of the bad wolf it's always I need something more and yeah. um, one of the you know we wrestle a lot we talk on this show a lot about some sort of paradoxes and one of them that kind of comes up is the idea of being driven to make changes in your life and to strive for the best life you can and being happy with the life you have and how those are how to do those two things at the same time I think is the yeah. is the is the trick and it's it's, it's so fascinating because I've looked at that a lot also you know I've, um, I've taken a lot of time looking at uh, Buddhism Eastern thought and a, and a good friend of mine is a is a long time uh, um, teacher and and devotee and, and I actually asked her this once and and I was <laughs> I was talking to her about the context of uh, the head of Shambhala Buddhism, uh, Sakyam Mipham Rinpoche, um, is you know very devout and and follows all of these tenets. But at the same time, he's a nine-time marathoner, uh, an accomplished equestrian, and he will play a fierce game of badminton against you if you issue a challenge. And so, like, how is how do you hold this duality of striving yet um, acceptance of your current reality at the same time? And you know, Thich Nhat Hanh writes about this as well, where he says, you know, at a certain point, he can't just sit and accept that um, he, you know, 
that he should accept a, a mass amount of suffering among people that he cares deeply about felt compelled to have, you know, take some kind of action. And, uh, and I think it's this really interesting duality that you're holding at this, at one time, you know, you want to appreciate what you have. Um, and at the same time, be open to and take action towards the possibility that, um, you may be able to attain a state which is, um, more rewarding. Um, and, you know, in, in a way, and, and the answer would be, you know, from sort of an Eastern thought perspective is that you can, you know, there's a difference between desire and aspire, and it has to do with attachment to the outcome that you can work hard and aspire to a certain end while simultaneously appreciating whatever your current state is. And, um, and so, you know, the goal is to do the work and appreciate the now and, um, and be open to the possibility that you may end up in a better place, but also know that if you don't, um, you're still okay. And, and I'm not saying that that's, uh, at all an easy concept for me or for, a Western mindset, but you know, when I think about it, that's kind of the way that I try and frame it, so so that it feels feels sensible to me. I agree with that. The thing I've been thinking about in regards to that is, I I certainly in the earlier parts of my life, it took pain to motivate me to change, um, and I have started to look at can can the motivation, the striving, the desire come from a different place. I think there was a link between, it's sort of the, the old uh, link between, you know, some degree of pain and, and an artist, whether that be a writer or a musician or a painter, and, and trying to wrap my head more around that it doesn't have to be a painful thing, um, a sense of dissatisfaction that drives that, but maybe simply the joy of doing, of striving for whatever that thing is, just the very enjoyment of doing it. Yeah, and, and you know, I think a lot of the pain of you know, the artist's pain and the creator's pain, the entrepreneur's pain is actually revolves around, um, the, you know, the suffering is about trying to make certain, uh, the world that you live in. And the one thing that I know for certain is that there is no certainty. You know, I can't lock down the future. Um, but we are wired to want to do that. I mean, our brains are literally soft wired by the time we, we become adults to, to respond um, really fiercely against actions and thoughts that move us into a state of uncertainty. The challenge being, you know, the definition of an artist or a creator in any realm is really bringing something to life that didn't exist before, which demands existing sometimes for really long windows of time in a state of uncertainty, in a state where you don't know how it's going to end. And, um, and, and we don't like that. So we try and move towards certainty rapidly or eliminate it. But at the same time, you know, we destroy the possibility of creating something really astonishing along the way. So to, to me, a lot of the suffering, a lot of the pain of, of an artist or a maker or an entrepreneur actually comes from banging your head up against um, the reality of uncertainty and, and the fact that it has to be a part of your process rather than just owning the fact that, yeah, you know, for me to do the work I'm here to do, there's going to be large window of, uh, windows of uncertainty. I can't control that. So let me see if instead I can actually cultivate a set of skills or practices that allow me, uh, you know, a, a sort of a baseline level of equanimity in the face of that.
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In, in one of your blog posts recently, you talked about the question of a, of a legacy that a lot of people are thinking. It's a, it's a thought that's on everybody's mind. There's a lot of talk about leaving a legacy. And, and you say that the, the quest, when you start to think in those terms, those questions can become paralyzing rather than catalyzing. And that maybe the better way to approach your legacy is what you do today and sort of connecting the dots backwards, as, as Steve Jobs said, versus trying to think forward to, to where it all goes. Yeah. I mean, very people um, that I either know of or know who are towards the later parts of their lives who you know feel like they've created some sort of substantial legacy have been able to see what that legacy is with any, any sort of, you know, like realistic detail um, 30 years before it happened. Uh, you know, the ones that, that tend to, to really create something extraordinary, I think are the ones that um, that aspire to do good work and serve on a certain level every single day, and um, and wake up you know and do that. So yeah, that that whole conversation was really about you know if in my mind probably the the most powerful uh, legacy that I could leave would be the collective output of a decision to wake up every day. And spend as much of this day um, doing things that light me up with people who light me up for people I love to serve, and then waking up tomorrow and doing the same thing. And and I really feel like if I can do that, if I can make that my focus, then I have this innate sense that the long term legacy that I end up creating will be the best possible legacy I could have created. It'll take care of itself, in other words. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. The other thing I, you re- that I read recently that sort of struck me, and I think these things are all kind of, of in, a, in a similar vein, but you say the path to becoming is littered with the remains of those who miss the grace in being. Yeah, um, 
everybody wants to become their next better self. And, uh, and I'm, I'm not against that, but it's about not, um, not owning the grace that you have today. You know, it's about, about completely striving, making your life a hundred percent about striving for the next thing and forsaking whatever beauty you have in front of you. And yeah. And again, I'm, I have no issue with aspiring and pursuing evolution and change. Um, I think it's fantastic. Um, I love to learn. I love, love, love to learn. Whenever I take a strengths-based test, it's always one of my top three strengths. I just, I love to learn and to grow. Um, but I also, you know, I love taking care of myself. I love being present in the lives of my daughter and my wife. I love um, just curling up on a couch and hanging out. And so there's, you know, and, and when you just, when you forget about those moments, it's funny, I had, um, you know, in our project, uh, I guess about a year and a half ago, I, I had the occasion to sit down with um, Brene Brown. And when I asked her what it meant for her to live a good life, she started to tear up and um, she kind of looked up and off to the side and she said, I'll get it wrong, but some variation of it's the little moments that so many of us steamroll over in search of the big moments. And she said, like, that's what it is for her. You know, it's waiting online to pick up your kids at school. It's these little moments where we're just like, can we just get it done with already? Rather than saying, man, <laughs> How blessed to be in, in, a, in a state and in a position and in a world where I actually get to do this. Um, and if it, can, if it can be even better, that's awesome. I'm open to that possibility. But, but don't just steamroll those current moments, you know, in, in the hope that you'll find another moment that's bigger down the road that's better. You may, but what if you don't? And with that mindset, as we said earlier, even if you do get to that bigger moment, you, it, it can ring hollow if you always think it's somewhere else. I mean, that's been the biggest lesson for me, uh, maybe over my lifetime is just, is to learn to want what I have to some degree. Yeah. To, I mean, with, while balancing those other things, because I, you know, the story I always tell is I, when I was younger, I had been, I had been like eight years without a car. I had lost my driver's. It's a long horrid story. But basically, I'd been like eight years without a car. And I finally was working and I got a brand new Dodge Neon, which, you know, it's a Dodge Neon, right? But it was a brand new car after nothing for eight years. About the first two or three days, I was ecstatic. By about the fourth day, I was looking at other cars on the road going, well, it's not a BMW, mm -hmm. which is such a sh shitty way to live. Yeah. I mean, but it's also wired into us, which is why, you know, Jonathan Haidt wrote about this in uh, The Happiness Hypothesis, and, and there's a bunch of research around this, which is that we tend to, or for some reason, we're wired in a way where we tend to measure our success relative to what the community people around us have. So, you know, I live in New York City. Um, so no matter how much money I make, there will always be a community of people in New York City that make, you know, a zillion times right. more than me right. that have bigger apartments and all this stuff. So, you know, it, but it's, it's bizarre that we're actually kind of wired to be happier that way where, you know, there's research done where somebody said, you know, would you rather have, uh, you know, make a hundred thousand dollars a year, but be, but know that the people around you, your neighbors are making 150 
or would you rather make $75,000 a year and know that you're making more than all of your neighbors? People chose the 75. I know, which is crazy. And it's, it is a perspective. We had this conversation with Lewis Howes when we were out in LA yeah. and we were sitting in his, he's got an apartment and I, and you know, I think maybe you've been there, but looking down over yeah, it's gorgeous. Hollywood, it's gorgeous, right? But we were talking about the fact that if you step out on his porch and you turn your head to the left, right? There's houses up on the hill <laughs> from there that are even better. And, and it seems like any place you find yourself at in life, if you, you can look up or you can look down. But I think the thing that I've been thinking about lately is neither of those things connect me to either of those people or my life. Yeah, no, totally agree. And, and you know, it also kind of ties in with uh, some of the work that Daniel Gilbert um, shared in his book, Stumbling Upon Happiness, a number of years back where he was looking at, you know, when we project how we think we'll feel and when we hit a certain place, if I were to call that effective forecasting, you know, we think we'll be pretty good. Well, you know, like if I got a million dollars in the bank 20 years from now, then this is the life I'll be able to lead. And it turns out that if you ask a complete stranger who's, you know, 20 years senior to you and has that amount of money in the bank, their answer about how happy they are will be more accurate than your, for your life than your guess is about how you'll feel when you get there. Yeah, we tend to not know what will make us happy. No, we really don't. I mean, it's, it's kind of like there's a little bit of a, a cruel trick being played in the way that our brains are wired. And it's like, you know, part of our work on the planet, I guess, is to, uh, to explore how to, uh, how, to, how to wire things a little bit differently, maybe to a certain extent. I also think it's very culturally based. You know, this is... That, you know, we're having this conversation in English in the United States, but if you had a similar conversation, you know, in parts of Asia, um, India, uh, you know, Europe, South America, this conversation would be radically different because the value set is radically different. Nearly everybody we talk to about how do you feed your good wolf, a part of that is who's around you. And I think yeah, that's, no doubt. that's so much a part of what makes a life good or not good is who, who we're around because we are so... Even as, as individuals we like to think we are, we do tend to absorb a lot of what's around us. Yeah, and no, I completely agree. It's funny. People will often ask me, uh, what's the best thing about being an entrepreneur and working with entrepreneurs? And, um, uh, you know, is it the money? Is it the freedom? Is it the creativity? I'm like, oh, those are all nice. You know, all of the, you know, the truth is in the early stages of entrepreneurship, you, you generally have none of those for it takes a while. Right. Um, and that's if you succeed. I said, you know, the really cool thing about it, at least for me, is that you get to pick both the people you surround yourself with and the culture that you build. And when you, when you understand that and when you make that the big priority, it's a game changer because you, you can wake up and your business can be having a tough time. You can be struggling. You can be in the startup stage and it's brutal. But if you've built a team, you know, a family of people where every day you love being around them and they share a set of values and beliefs and aspirations and, and you know, you, together you've built this culture, which is incredible, it's, it makes everything okay. Yeah, that's, well, that's why I picked my partner Chris here to do the podcast yeah. with because it was somebody I wanted. He's yeah. making a happy sign. Somebody I wanted to be around, and I've I've had entrepreneurial ventures before where I I made decisions differently, and when things got tough, it was it was really unpleasant. Yeah, I mean it's the same thing, and it's a huge focus. Where as we're building the team for Good Life Project now, you know, that's we're like a family. Um, we just love being around each other. We love working together, and it's uh, it's definitely one of the biggest blessings. 
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'll turn your question back on you. What does a good life mean to you? Um, there are a lot of different ways that I could answer that question, but I think the simplest way is, um, you know, to me there are three buckets. Uh, there's contribution, connection, vitality, and it's structuring your life in a way where you're constantly filling all three buckets. So you're deeply connected with a sense of self and uh, soul and service and community and people you care about. You're you're vital and healthy, as as healthy as you can be, and and pain free and strong, and your mindset is sound and 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 calm, um, and that you're contributing to the world on a level that fills your soul and also serves something bigger than you, and um, you know the the shorthand for that for me is is to. Um, Spend your time doing things that light you up with people who light you up for people you love to serve. You know, if I follow that as a guiding ethic, it's 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 hard to go wrong. Yep. Let me ask you a uh, let me come at that a slightly different way because a question I get from some of our listeners sometimes is, well, it's easy for Jonathan Fields to. Uh, to have a good life because he does choose some of those things. And, but I've, you know, my life circumstances are a little bit different. Maybe I am not in a position where I think, where I can create my own business that's going to feed my family and do all that. How do I build a good life within that structure? It's kind of funny because people make assumptions and you look at me and you're like, ah, oh, that dude's living high in New York City, he's making a great living, got a great business, great family. Um, everybody gets into the habit of comparing their insides to other people's outsides. And the moment you do that, you lose, you know, it's because there's just, you don't know what my reality is. You don't know what anybody else's real inner truth is. You don't know what we're living with, struggling with, um, because nobody shares on that level of transparency. I certainly don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent transparent or anywhere near it with the way that I live my life or the way that I share it publicly. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, you tend to make yourself more miserable by comparing your, your inner life with, you know, the outer life of people you perceive as being, you know, have, successful or having the thing that you want to have. So number one, just stop. Don't do it. Um, but the other thing is that it kind of goes back to what we were saying before. There, you know, there are ways to um, own the circumstances that you can uh, that you can't control and then figure out how to get some level of ease, you know, just sort of change, wire your brain the way a little bit differently to be able to respond to, um, the things that you can change in a way with a lot more equanimity and also really basic practices. You know, it's not a good life, happiness. Um, it's not about what you've got, you know, it's really, it's about, who you're with, it's about how well you are, um, 
and it's about the level of meaning that's in your life. You know, you look at, um, you know, Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, and you read that book and you're just weeping to see what he, he went through in the Holocaust. And, you know, he makes a really, really powerful point in that we become giddy, especially in, in this country, um, at the thought of happiness as the defining thing to pursue. And he's like, you know, maybe that's a little bit overrated and, and even potentially seriously misguided. What about meaning? There's a, a lot around meaning, you know, and maybe the most fulfilled people are actually the ones with the greatest meaning in life. And that meaning can come from doing the smallest tasks and being of service and seeing you know, like a child uh, flourish every day it can come from so many different things. And very often, as Frankel shares and many other people share, it actually comes from sacrifice. It comes from what other people would consider outwardly to be suffering and pain but the, it yields a deep sense of meaning that leads to a deeply gratifying um, life. So, you know, I wonder often whether, you know, people make that comment and they're focused on, well, well, she or he has things I don't have and I don't see how to get them rather than um, how can I create more meaning with anything and everything that I'm doing? If my job is making nine bucks an hour, you know, sweeping floors or in a factory, is there some way that I can actually show up at work and do that job and imbue it with, with a deeper sense of, of meaning or pride or, or gratitude? Um, and I, I don't, I, I absolutely don't want to profess to, you know, I don't have the arrogance to say that I have all the answers and that, you know, people who are living in deep poverty need to just pick themselves up by the bootstraps and it's, you know, it's their choice. Uh, look, this is a really, really complex problem when you're talking about deep poverty, and I don't profess to have the answers. Um, all I so so I can't just sort of say this is a salve for that. But what I can say is that increasingly you learn about people who have been through the most horrific experiences and circumstances and still found a way to feel like you know what this day, this moment, there's meaning in what I'm doing. And that makes it okay. You know, it was a Kant that said, you know, you can endure almost anyhow if you have the right why. I, I think that really is powerful. Yeah, what I love about Viktor Frankl also is he really says, look, there isn't a universal meaning. You can't look out there for yeah. – it, it, you make it. It's your it's, – it's up to you to make and find your own meaning, and that will be different for every person. And that's a very freeing um, – in some ways, I think there's some pressure with it, but it's a very freeing concept. Instead of trying to figure out the meaning of life, it's what what's my life mean? Yeah, and and I also it's it's an evolutionary process. You know, you'll there's a there's a lot of focus these days, especially in the pop psychology and the internet self help world. And yeah, you've got to find your life's purpose. Um, I'm not so much a believer in that. You know, I think there are a small handful of people who touch down on the planet and some, you know, at the age of six, they know they want to be a vet, um, you know, or a painter and boom, that's it for life. Milton Glaser, who um, is one of maybe the most iconic living designer in the world at age six years old now, had an amazing opportunity to sit down with him last year. And he knew what he wanted to do with his life when he was five years old. But that is so rare. Yeah. Most people, you know. You go out there and you just keep trying things and you keep doing things and you build data that at some point starts to say these are the qualities of, uh, of you know, an experience on the planet that make me feel good, that 
that make me feel happy and filled with meaning. Some people never get there. Um, and, but most people who do get there connect the dots looking backwards. They don't take a test and say, boom, this is it. You know, it's just, and I think sometimes when you put pressure on people to have to do that and know it before they can actually build anything meaningful, it's more, more, it, it, it paralyzes people more than it frees them to act and experiment. Right. Which is right back to the thing we talked about earlier of that if you, if you imbue yourself with such heavy questions, those become paralyzing versus focusing on yeah. what you can do right now that that's positive. Something you recently, um, I don't know if it was a, a podcast or a blog post, but you talked about the idea of a guru. And I, I so resonated with what you said, because you talk about how, you know, for a large portion of your life, you were looking for that one person that would that would transform you and give you sort of the direction for life. And that how every time you, you got involved with that, you'd get to a certain point with a person or a, a school of thinking, and there'd eventually come a point where it didn't, it didn't fit you. And what you say is that you eventually realized that the person you were looking for was the person that you had to become. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's interesting when I shared that, then somebody offered in the comments, which was really powerful and very true. She said, you know, it was like dot, 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 or the person you already are. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's more what I mean. Um, but it's peeling, you know, there's an interesting concept in, uh, in, uh, yoga. Um, people say it's about transformation. If you really actually drill down and you translate the Sanskrit, um, there's a, there's a phrase Jivan Mukti or Jivan Mukti, um, which translates to liberated being. It's not transformed being, it's liberated. And the idea is that it's, it's in there already. You know, it's like, it's like Michelangelo and the David. It's like, like, I didn't create this. I just chipped away all the stuff so that you could see, you know, the David that was already inside this huge slab of stone. And the concept is that, you know, it's all there inside of us now. It's more about peeling away all the gunk that, that gets layered on through life and, and just to get back down to your essence and realize that you pretty much have everything that you need. And we spend so much time out in the world looking for somebody to tell us it's going to be okay rather than just doing the work to know. Exactly. And that's a, uh, I think, like the, some of the other things we've talked about, that's both a liberating and a, and a scary concept at the, at the same time. But it, for me, I, I think I had the realization that you did, that I kept... I kept looking for this person that was who I was going to grow into and nobody's going to grow into that except me. There's nobody who's going to see the world the way that I do or have the experiences that I have. And as soon as somebody didn't do those things, I was like, well, they're not the one for me versus taking what was useful from who they were and what they were learning and realizing though, those, those final few steps, I I'm the only one that's going to take them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and also, you know, it's, it's important to say that I don't discount at all the, um, the importance and the beauty of having teachers. You know, I think it's wonderful. I think there's sometimes just a misplaced expectation that this is the person that will solve your life. Right. <laughs> and, um, and that's, that's not, uh, it's, it's not useful for you. And it's also having oddly been placed, um, had those expectations placed on me by other people. It's, it's unsettling to be on the other side of that equation. Also, at least it was, it has been for me on the times it's happened in the past because I don't hold myself out to be that person. Well, that's one of the things I think that people resonate with you about is that you don't, 
you don't do that and you're fairly I get what you're saying you're saying about not being totally transparent about every emotion but there's a fair degree of of um I think openness there at least to not having it all figured out I think there's there's a lot of questioning in your writing yeah and it's it's very deliberate you know I love to a lot of my writing is about starting conversations um, what's kind of fun also is that there are times where I actually, I'll ask questions where I, I kind of know the answer that I have to the question, but I really want to, I want to hear from other people and I want to plant the seed where they can have a robust conversation that becomes very often the conversations, you know, on, on the blog end up being way longer. And to be honest, probably a lot more interesting than the initial, the initial posts, which, which I'll often use just as a prompt to get people talking. Yep. And I think the, the, the beauty of that a lot of times is it's, it's a lot more authentic when you kind of come to those conclusions yourself by thinking through them versus having them handed to you on a plate, which I think, and we're, we're nearing the end of time, but I'm going to, that ties to one last thing that I was struck by in some of your writing. And it was about how people will come and say, you know, I need help with whatever that thing is. And then not really be willing to accept that help because the feeling is we have to have it all figured out. And that ability to say, I don't know what's happening here and I will learn from someone else is so frightening for some people that they can never move beyond that. Yeah, um, it's just we are, we're so wired to run from vulnerability and it's not even vulnerability, it's public vulnerability. We're so wired not to want to own the fact that we don't know which way is up in any kind of public way, whether it's with a partner, with, you know, like uh, people at work, whether it's, you know, completely publicly. Um, the, uh, in in uh, um, Steve Dubner and Levitt's last uh, Freakonomics book, I can't remember exactly what, which, what the name of the latest one was, but they were talking about a study where you know, they, they basically did all this research that showed that even, you know, from a young age, people just, they don't want to use the words, I don't know, because you just feel like it's wrong. You know, like you're somehow lesser if you do that. So it's interesting to have been on the end of an equation where people would seek me out um, or people would seek out a consultant. I mean, it's funny when I wrote that post, I actually didn't phrase it as me. Um, but, uh, you know, somebody will go to seek out help of a consultant or a master or, uh, you know, somebody or a mentor. And then that mentor gives them exactly what, what they're looking for. Um, but for them to accept it, they have to admit that they completely had no idea which way it was up. And, and they can't own that. So they reject everything that's being offered and say, well, like, you're not helping, you're not helping, you're not helping. You're like, no, it's um, you got to own the fact you have to be open and you, people ask for help, but very often they're not actually open to what they, you know, to what they are, they're asking for being given. And they're two different things and two different practices. Yeah. I think you said asking is not the same as receiving. And I think that circles back around to the conversation about the blog, about putting questions out there because people can arrive at those conclusions and then they feel like it's their conclusion and it's easier to accept in that case. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also, you know, I've got a great, great community and who, you know, they're probably a hundred times smarter than me when you put it all together collectively. So 
why wouldn't, if I'm sort of really exploring something, um, why wouldn't I just put it out and say, hey, listen, this is what I'm thinking, but what do you guys think? Because maybe I'll learn something great from them. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. It's been a really enjoyable conversation. And uh, like I said, I'm a big fan of the, the work that you're doing and, and looking forward to seeing what you continue to do. Thanks so much. It's been my pleasure hanging out with you. Okay, thanks. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye. For more information on this podcast and Jonathan Fields, go to oneufeed.net slash fields.